Okay, thanks everyone. If you want to take your seats, if you're here with us in the room, uh, if you're watching at home, then, well, you can do whatever you want. I mean, you can, you can do a handstand if you want, but perhaps you might want to sit down as well if you've been standing up. A uh, very warm welcome to you all, uh, particularly if this is your first time either here in the building or your first time uh, watching online from home. Uh, we know that stepping into a place like this or watching a service like this might be uh, an unusual experience if it's something that you're not used to. Um, and what we're going to look at today in the Bible is a passage that might seem at first glance a bit unusual, a bit peculiar. Um, perhaps if you're just exploring Christianity and you've got yourself a Bible or you found it online or you've got a Bible app, you may find your experiences that sometimes you open it up and some bits of it just don't make any sense. Um, and at first glance, this chapter might appear like that. But actually, as we've been going through this book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, which we're going to be speaking from today, we've called this series Wisdom for a World that Refuses to Make Sense. And actually, so often, it's the world around us that leaves us confused and baffled. It's our experience of life that leaves us uh, struggling to understand what on earth is going on. And actually, we believe that the Word of God is true wisdom that we build our lives upon. Um, so one thing, a practical tip, if you ever come to a bit of the Bible that doesn't make any sense, is pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to make the Word come alive in your hearts. So why don't you just do that right now, just before I read this passage. Just quietly, just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, and I'm sure he will today. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we're going to read the first 13 verses of that. It says this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bride corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has 
made crooked. Let me read that last verse again. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Let me pray. Jesus, we ask that as we look at these words today, we do want to desire that you speak to us. We do so often look around at the world around us, our lives, the last 18 months of our life in particular, and think, what is going on? Why, why are these things happening? How do I make sense of this all? And so often we don't find any answers. Life refuses to make sense. And yet we believe that you're a God who gives us wisdom for life. We pray that these words today would feed our souls and ultimately more than anything else would help us to see you and your goodness and your love. Amen. Amen. I don't know if any of you watched the Friends Reunion TV show that came out a few weeks ago. A few nods from here, people in the room. The, uh, I read a, an article about this TV show that was on the uh, Guardian website, which is a newspaper in the UK. And uh, my experience of watching the Friends Reunion TV show was they all look really... I look a bit beaten up. <laughs> it was difficult not to judge them because there's these people that 20 years ago were in supposedly the prime of their life, these beautiful, attractive actors and actresses. And you see them now and you think, wow, wow, what's, what's happened to them? It was difficult not to think that as you watched it. You know, it's, uh, it's difficult not to judge them. And this newspaper article I was reading said this, it said, the answer to Joey's favorite question, how are you doing, seems to be for some of them just hanging in there. And that was my experience of watching it, thinking like, wow, man, what's happened to these guys? And we see it, the article goes on to say, we see what they're like, and yet the unbelievable thing is, we truly believe if we had their opportunities, we would be different. We would be the one that finds happiness in fame and glamour. And so often that's, that's how we think. We see the, the, I guess what you saw in that TV show more than anything else is what it talks about so often in this book of Ecclesiastes, that life is, uh, is vanity. Or the way you could perhaps translate that word is life is a is a vapor. Our lives, as it talks about in the Psalms, our lives are just a mere breath. And we think we've got hold of something and then it slips out of our hand. That we look back over the course of our life and things have moved on so quickly and we're aware that our lives really are quite fragile. That life moves on quickly. Life is hard. Life, or at least sometimes, will feel hard. Life sometimes leaves us feeling hurt and it, it wears our bodies, we, just, we age. It's unstoppable, however much surgery we might want to have. And that's perhaps what I recalled when I saw that show, that we're all, we're all like that. And yet we see this vanity, this kind of vapor of life, the, as he talks about in here, the sort of how life can sometimes feel crooked. 
I don't mean crooked as in evil, I mean crooked as in it's just not straight. It's just bent out of shape. And we often see it in other people, but if we're really honest, we see it in ourselves as well. And the Bible, particularly this book of Ecclesiastes, is it's very honest about life. It doesn't pull its punches. It, it's, a, it, it's very real about the story of life, the vanity, the, the vapor of life, the struggles of life, the challenges of life. And we all know this, we all experience this, and yet not only do we watch TV shows and think that if we had the opportunity, we would be different, but we even assess our own lives and think, I can still change. We're always imagining the sort of future version of ourselves, even if that future is just next week or tomorrow morning or five years' time. And the future version of ourselves, that guy, he's got it all together. You know, he doesn't have any problems anymore. Those issues that I have now, he's dealt with them, he's moved on. His financial worries have passed away. His struggles, his concerns, his fears have all been eradicated. The future version of me is, he's, he's, he's quite a dude. And we think like that. And maybe that's a question you might want to ask yourself. If, if you could change something about your life, what would it be? You know, maybe you want smaller ears or longer legs. You want to worry less. You want to have more money more security, better relationships. There are things about our lives that we want to change. But surely, if we've learned anything from the last 18 months of our life, is that there's, there's some huge things around us which are just completely out of our control. You know, I, I can't do anything about a global pandemic. I, I just can't. And if there's anyone in this room that can, then you know, you should probably get on and do something about it because it's becoming a bit of a problem now. <laughs> but that's, surely we should have learnt that by now. There are things in our life that we just can't do anything about. And yet we live this with this illusion that we can change, that we can make things better. But more and more, the wisdom this book gives us is that there are some things, many things, many things, that are out of our control, or at least our control of them is very limited, it's very delicate. And the reality is, is that life often is, is bent out of shape, is crooked. And yet we try and make it straight. We try and straighten out our lives and this passage gives us a few ways that we try and do that. A few ways we try and avoid the crookiness of our life and try and make things straight. First of all, we try and avoid death. Because that's a confusing verse that it starts with when it says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. That sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? <laughs> but this guy's a real pessimist, surely. Surely to say it's better to die than to be born, that's pretty dark. Sounds like the title of a heavy metal album, doesn't it? It's pretty, pretty brutal. But he's not being a pessimist at all, actually. But he's saying is so often this is how we live. We, we try and ignore death. Or at least we try and deflect it. We try and hold it at arm's length. The reality of 
of death, we, we try and distract ourselves from it. There's this desire within all of us for immortality. This, it's built in, it's hardwired into our system that we want to live forever. And any, any hints of death, we try and avoid it, we try and turn our back on it. To consider it causes us too much woe, too much worry, too much concern. But actually, what the point he's trying to make in this book is actually that dying people are the most alive. When you realize that your time is limited, that your life is just a vapor, that it will pass, when you consider your life in the grand scheme of all eternity, in, in the grand plan of God, and you realize how tiny it is, it's actually quite releasing. What death does is it, it schools us, it trains us in humility. Because there's this prideful desire within us to ignore death or to try and pretend it won't get us one day when it's perhaps the only real certainty that any of us have. We try and avoid death. The second way we try and avoid the crookedness of life, we try and make life straighten out for us, is we try and avoid suffering, particularly when it becomes to our relationships. It says here, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And it's true. But so often we build our relationships very superficially. We, we enjoy relationships that, where we have a good, good time, people that make us feel good, people that we can just laugh with, people that we can have, as it, as it uses here, mirth. We want to be in the house of mirth. We, want to, we just want to laugh, just enjoy. We don't want people that are going to rebuke us. Why would we want that? We don't, want to, we don't want people that are going to tell us what's really true about ourselves. Why would we want that? We avoid it. And when we find that relationships get a little bit uncomfortable, we, we step away. You know, this relationship was, it was giving me lots of good. I was having a great time. And now you've asked that question, why do I want to be your friend anymore? And so often the relationships around us are built on, on a sort of a cycle of immaturity. That we, we, we enjoy the first stages of friendships where it's all fun and getting to know one another. And then as soon as it gets hard, as soon as it gets difficult, we, we cut people out of our lives. We, we mute them, we, we unfollow them, we unfriend them. But the reality is the best relationships are often the most painful. I don't mean that all painful relationships are good. Some relationships that cause you pain are bad and are hurtful and painful. But actually in healthy relationships, behind the scenes there's often been disagreement, argument, telling each other the truth and having to hear it and having to respond, that's hard. And I'm, I'm reaching, I'm 40 this year, 
next month, and I'm, I'm feeling the weariness of age and time. <laughs> when I go for a run, my ankles ache. When I eat food, it sits on my belly. I'm getting old. But when I look back on my friendships, the ones that have really lasted, the ones that still do me good, are the ones where we've been through the most disagreements, the most arguments. And the relationships which I just built on just having a good time, even people that I've known a really long time, if all that relationship ever amounted to was having a good time, when I see them now or connect with them now, we don't really have much to say to each other. All the things we say are just nostalgia. We just look back and talk about the good times. Whereas people that I've actually opened my life to and they've opened their life to me, we've, we've got things to talk about. Because we've been on a journey together and we know that despite the words of rebuke, that we care for one another, that we love for one another. And yet so often we, we, we avoid it because we don't like that suffering. We don't like the difficult conversations. The other way this passage talks about how we try and avoid the crookedness of life, we try and make things straight, is we avoid endings. It says in verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Which again sounds pretty bleak. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. But I think what this is trying to point us to, again with our relationships, is that they require a, the Bible uses this word patience, which in some translations it translates as long suffering. That's what relationships need, is that we need to, to stop running away sometimes. Sometimes it's healthy to run away from bad relationships, but there are good relationships which we can lean into, where we shouldn't just run away when they get hard. It says here, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. See, proud people they, they run away when things get hard. Patient people lean in. And that's when it talks, when the Bible talks about relationships, particularly in the New Testament, one of the most often quoted words is this idea of patience. Again and again, whenever it talks about relationships, patience, patience, because the Bible knows what we're like, that we're not perfect people. So when you put two people together, even two brilliant, you know, wonderful, brilliant Christian people, they need patience because we're sinful and we, whether we do it deliberately or not, we hurt one another. We say things that we regret. We say things when we're tired, which is stupid. We say hurtful things, sometimes even deliberately. We miss hear what other people say. We're always trying to read between the lines. We, we hurt each other that you need patience to build with people so lean into endings learn what it is to end things I don't mean to kill things off but to to not just do the beginning of things we like doing the start 
It's good. We like to be creative people. We like to start new initiatives. My life is full of things that I've started but never finished. My bookshelves are full of books I've started and never finished. And that's okay. It's okay to start a book and not finish it. But I don't want to start relationships and not finish them. So, an important question I think we have to come to when we look at this passage, when we consider how we try and straighten out the crookedness of life is, well, how, how are we going to trust God's plan? What does that look like? When it says, that final verse, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Now think about that for a question, for, for a moment. Because the question we asked at the start was, what would you, what would you change about your life? I think we should consider that and think, well, why would we change it? Why do you want to change your life? If God's made you like that, if God's put you in that situation, in that circumstance, why would you want to change it? If that's God's plan for your life, why would you want to alter it? Because if anything, that's just foolishness. It's arrogance to think that we could make a better jo a job of our lives than God could. Because if you look back on the experience of your life, how's that going? <laughs> how's that going? To step away from God's plan and to put our own plan in place is I do that all the time. I think, yeah, I think God might be saying this, but if I do it my way, hmm, if I do it my way, it doesn't go very well. It really doesn't. But within that, again, we come to a question of, but why would, why would God make life crooked? Why doesn't God make life straight and easy? Why are things uncomfortable, painful? Why is there suffering in our lives? It's a question that our hearts come back to again and again. And it's, it's a good question, because it's the question it says here. It says, consider the work of God. Consider it. Ask. Question the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Let me give you three reasons of why, why God sometimes makes our lives crooked. First of all, we've got to understand that the fact that he is a, a sovereign God, which means he is in control of all things, all the details of our lives, big and small, from global pandemics to hair loss, he's in control of all of these things. And that gives us hope. Because sometimes we can, we can get into our head that there's some kind of choice. There's a choice between a God of love who, who just sees brokenness and is like a firefighter, constantly running around, all these bad things, trying, trying to put out the fire because he loves us. But these things, they're not, they're not his doing. They're just badness that God's trying to extinguish and get rid of. We think that that's a choice, that there's either a, a nice God of love who's just trying to fix everything against a, 
a kind of a sovereign God who's just dictating. Actually, God's both. He's a God of love, but he's also sovereign in control over all things. He's not like a firefighter desperately running around the chaos of our lives trying to fix everything. He's, he's more like a surgeon who steps in to, to heal us. Sometimes that means making an, an incision, a, a cut into our lives because he's, ultimately his plan is to, to do us good. And if God isn't sovereign, if the world is just chaos out of his control, there's no hope there. There's no we talked about in, in, at the start, the fact that he's a, a God of providence who provides for us. He's a God who's in control of all things, who's sovereign. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Gives us hope. The writer Paul Tripp said, all the worrisome things that lurk around the corner are under the careful rule of your loving Savior. All the worrisome things that lurk around the corner are under the careful rule of your loving Savior. The second reason I want to give you is, is from a poem by a, a, someone who lived about 500 years ago called George Herbert. He says this in his poem, Away despair, my gracious Lord does hear, though wind and waves assault my keel. He does preserve it, he does steer, even when the boat seems most to reel, storms are the triumph of his art. Well may he close his eyes, but not his heart. Storms are the triumph of his art. It's one of the ways that God blesses us and does us good. Is, his, his, is an art form at work. Is through storms in our lives. See, because suffering, when we suffer things in life, first of all, it reveals to us what we trust. How I respond to suffering reveals what I trust. Am I trusting myself to make a way through? Trusting myself to try and straighten it out? Or am I trusting God? Also, suffering will reveal sin in our life. It's often only you really realize what you're truly like when you hit seasons that are hard, seasons of struggle, seasons of difficulty, and then suddenly you're aware, oh yeah. See, I thought other people were the problem, but maybe it's the sin in my life that's the problem. Also, often in the grace of God, when we walk through seasons of suffering, it might be he's actually saving us from something else that we don't realize. Often I've looked back on seasons of my life that have felt hard, and I can look back on them now and think, I'm so glad I walked through that. If I, if I hadn't had that trial, I think I probably would have ended up like this. And I'm so grateful God saved me from that. He put me through a, a hard season, a tough experience, a difficult part of a relationship because he wanted to bring health out of it. See, what God does is through trial and suffering, he's strengthening us all the time. Because what he's doing is he's drawing us into trust in him. 
the more we realize our inability to fix everything, the more we recognize his ability to fix things, to fix us. It leads us into depending on him. Through suffering, we see what's better around us. Again and again, this verse speaks of things that are better. Seven times it uses that word, better, better. There are things in life that are just better. God's plan for you is just better. And sometimes it's only in suffering that we realize that. And also we have to answer the question, who can make straight what he has made crooked? The answer is not us, but he can. There are things in your life that are out of your control that you can't fix, that you struggle with, that you can't see an end to. But God knows a way through. If you trust him, him, he'll work out his plan. Because ultimately we have a, we have a suffering saviour. It's the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. He's not a cold, callous God. He's not just dictating his plan from on high. He's not just ruling over us like we're sort of ants running around in the colony. The things that we can't change, the things we can't make straight, the things we can't fix, the crookedness of life that we can't straighten out, he doesn't just dictate from up on high. He, God stepped down as a saviour. And even in Jesus' own life, he could have changed his story he could have taken hold of his life and, and changed it. There's moments, if you read his story, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, before his death, where he cries out to God, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Where Jesus chooses to not try and straighten things out, but follow God's crooked, bent out of shape plan that he had to die, that he had to suffer and die to give us life. And now he's come to straighten us out. All the things in our life that have been out of shape, all our sin, our brokenness, he's come to fix us, to bit by bit, little by little, put us back together again in his grace and mercy. Let me pray and then Nikhil and Ludo are gonna lead us. Jesus, we thank you so much when we, we try and answer that question, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? It gives us great peace to know that we can't, but you can. That's so often life is painful. We walk through seasons of hurt and difficulty alongside, even sometimes intermingled with seasons of joy and delight. And we, we praise you, we thank you for the, the good seasons and we lean into you and we depend on you through the hard seasons, knowing that you're a God who wants to do us good, that you're a good father, you're a loving, kind father who speaks to us hope and life, who steps into our life and sometimes like a surgeon just makes incisions and cuts and surgery, but it's because you want to heal us. And because little by little you're healing us. And ultimately you have healed us in Jesus Christ. That you step down to straighten everything out once and for all. We put our trust in you this morning and pray help us to follow you. Help us to leave here today or to turn off the screen knowing the goodness of your grace and mercy towards us. Amen.